Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Turning the Tables by Rob Wilson. As we head towards Easter, I, I want to look, we'll be looking obviously in the next few weeks at, at the cross and the significance of the, the events of the cross and the resurrection and the, and the uh, absolutely incredible period of history that, uh, that it was when Jesus died on the cross for us. But I want to have a look today at the events leading up to the cross um, and, and do a little bit of a flyover um, um, of Jesus' life uh, leading up to that point in time. And, um, so I want to focus in the end on a passage that I think caused quite a stir in the church, particularly when people read it for the first time. Um, and uh, so I've entitled today's message, Turning the Tables. Now, you'll notice there's no PowerPoint. There's, uh, I had a little bit of a technical issue today and wasn't able to get a PowerPoint up there. And I'll be honest, the technical issue was I didn't do one. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I did think about it. I had all these ideas for it and then just didn't get around to it. And I was going to get up early this morning and do it. I just need to have a bit of a sleep in and and get myself fresh. So, yeah, that's the technical issue we have. So I don't have a PowerPoint for you today, but it's called Turning the Tables. And it's going to be uh, based on the passages found in Mark 11, 15 to 17. But before we get to that, I would like to do a little flyover of the life of Jesus, um, looking at it from the book of Mark. Now, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. And um, But, uh, yeah, having a look at what happened preceding that, getting to the point where he went to the cross. So, see, Jesus often throughout, the, um, throughout his life and throughout his ministry, he taught in parables, and there was two groups of people that he was usually talking to. There were the, the crowds, there were the followers of Jesus, the disciples. There were those who had a heart yearning to know about the kingdom of God, yearning to know about the truth, those who had ears to hear what he was saying and a responsive heart to his message, the disciples and the, and the crowd. But they were mostly the, the ordinary people. They were, they were fishermen. They were tax gatherers. They were, you know, ordinary people, sinners, who were following, but they had a heart to hear from Jesus. But always when he taught, there was this other group of people on the side, the authorities, the religious elite, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees who were, who were listening in and they, they weren't listening with the same uh, perspective. In fact, as they were listening, they felt threatened. They felt challenged by Jesus' message. Um, they felt they started to plot against him um, as they heard. They had a hard heart. And um, you see, they were profiting very much from the way things were. And we're going to look at that uh, with the turning the tables. But if we look through, um, as we look through the book of Mark, Jesus started out in Nazareth. He was then tempted in the wilderness. He did the early part of his ministry through Galilee. He called his first disciples in Galilee. Um, he did a lot of preaching and teaching around Capernaum, um, through Galilee and through that region, around the Sea of Galilee. We see that um, uh, he, he did a lot of his preaching, uh, sorry, a lot of his parables. The early parables were, were around that area. Um, in Mark 6, it says that he went into Nazareth, back to his hometown, and that he was rejected by his own. And Jesus said in uh, Mark 6, verse 4, he said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Perhaps a little bit like Reuben. <laughs> After he left Nazareth, he taught uh, around the surrounding villages in a, in a circuit around those villages and, and it was in that place that he sent his disciples out to preach in twos. 
when they, after they'd uh, preached, they gathered together and he suggested that they get away and rest like Pastor Sean's doing today. And if, if you're involved in ministry, it's really important to have those times of refreshing, to get away and rest after you've been ministering, to, to get away and rest. Jesus taught it to his disciples. They'd only done their first kind of missionary uh, efforts in the area and he got them to go away and rest and to reflect. And so I'm very much looking forward to Pastor Sean coming back next week, not only physically and emotionally strengthened by his rest, but spiritually in tune because we have those time, when we have those times of rest, we have the, the opportunity for God to speak to us. And, uh, you know, it says to be still and know that I am God. Um, you know, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and he will, uh, he'll do that. So a wonderful thing to have that time of rest. Um, after that, we saw Jesus feed the 5,000. We saw that he walked on water. He did many miracles and healings and, and, and again, he taught in parables in that area. By Mark 7, he moved on to Tyre and Sidon and then to Decapolis where he fed the 4,000. After that, immediately he got into his boat with the disciples and he went to the region of Dalmanatha in Mark 8, chapter 10. Um, after that, he went across the sea again, this time to Bethsaida where he healed the blind man. Um, from there, he went to Caesarea uh, in Philippi with his disciples. But just Peter, James and John went with him up the mountain uh, where the transfiguration occurred. So in Mark 9, 3 to 4, it says, His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The last month I've done the laundry in our house, I can relate to this verse far more than I've ever been able to do. And I actually want to honour my wife for the incredible amount of work she does in our household. I do the washing sometimes. She does it most of the time. And having had to do it more, realise just how much stuff we have to go through all the time. I want to honour my wife Louise for that. Um, but, uh, you know, no matter how, much, how good we you know, bleach our stuff, we can't get it as white as what Jesus appeared there as, we, as they saw the glimpse of his glory uh, in that transfiguration um, experience, uh, Elijah and Moses appearing with them. What an incredible moment that would have been to have witnessed. Following that, they went back to Capernaum and then to Judea on the other side of the Jordan. And then uh, finally we get... To, on the road towards Jerusalem, heading towards the uh, events of the cross. So you can see that actually the area that Jesus ministered in wasn't, you know, it wasn't a vast amount of, of area. It was all around um, the reasonably local regions around that area. Um, and, uh, and that was the extent of his um, ministry physically, which is why he empowered us to, to take the you know, word into the whole world and, and the, uh, the church beyond that to go into, into all the world to preach the gospel. So we're continuing his ministry uh, beyond that. Um, so on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus, for the third time, predicted his death. So he'd actually said directly to his disciples that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be given over to the authorities. He was going to be um, sentenced to death, but that three days later... He would rise again. He predicted that three times to his disciples before uh, the events occurred. He moved on to Jericho on his way to Jerusalem and he healed blind Bartimaeus. And then we find in Mark 11 verses 1 to 3 where he was coming into Jerusalem and I'll read from there. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt uh, tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. 
So the disciples went and did that. And then in verse 7 to 11, it says, They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The triumphant entry. An incredible moment um, prophesied and, and fulfilling prophecy. Um, it says immediately after that, Jesus went into the temple, had a look around, and as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. But I want to, firstly, before we get to the turning of the tables, what was the significance of the triumphant entry? You see, on this day, as Jesus was being led into Jerusalem, there was another very significant event taking place. Uh, according to their traditions, the priestly shepherds who, catch, uh, who kept watch over the sacrificial lambs, those that were without blemish, uh, were leading them, the Pascal lambs they're called, um, well, that's how I pronounce it, um, were leading them from the shadow of the Migdalita into Jerusalem. You see, this was the 10th day of the month, the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, their new year. The same 10th of the month that God had told Moses to set as a yearly observance. This was the day that the unblemished male lambs were brought into Jerusalem, Jerusalem to be chosen by each family and taken into their home. It was this day Jesus of Nazareth was accepted into the home of Israel as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey while the crowd cheered. So do you see the parallels and symbolism here? But it, see, it goes beyond that because the, the Pascal lambs were chosen on the 10th day and then sacrificed on the 14th day. So Jesus was accepted as the Messiah on the 10th day and then sacrificed on the 14th day. He was once and for all the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was unblemished and without sin. And we'll see that's also important in the following bit about turning the tables. Just as the Pascals or the sacrificial lambs were to be unblemished, his blood would be poured out um, on the cross just as the sacrificial lamb's blood were poured out at the Passover. Then there's the significance of the donkey. You know, uh, before I kind of looked into this, I'd often thought of how the donkey kind of represented the humility of Jesus uh, coming in. But uh, and, and that's what we often focus on, but there's so much more to it than that. Because, you see, during the biblical times, um, kings would enter a city into one of two ways, either on a horse or on a donkey. And uh, so, you know, kings would, yeah, ride a, ride a donkey at times. Because uh, I think if we think about royalty, we think about um, you know them sitting on a white stallion with their all their royal regalia on as they as they ride, and they did do that sometimes. But they also rode a donkey sometimes. So during the biblical times, the way the king uh, entered the city was representative of why and how he came. Uh, if he came for war, then he would ride a horse. But if he came in peace, he would enter on a donkey. And um, so in, in 1 Kings 1, 32 to 38, we can see this when David has um, Zadok the priest anoint Solomon as the next king. David instructs Solomon to ride on David's own mule as he's presented to the people as the next king. It was, this was significant because it indicated the kind of reign that Solomon would have, a peaceful one. You know, David was known as a war king. Ever since he was a boy, he was involved in in bloodshed, and, and uh, he was attacking the enemies of Israel, and uh, and so he was a a, a war king. 
Um, he shed much blood um, throughout his reign, um, which was in fact why he wasn't allowed to build the temple um, in First Chronicles 22.8. And in fact, it was Solomon who was authorised to do that, um, and he would be the man of peace, the kingdom of peace. And um, so that riding the donkey was significant to show that he was going to be a peaceful reign um, after David's uh, war reign, if you like. Um, so he rode in on the donkey as the symbol of peace. Once we see this significance, we realise that Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, was a symbol of peace. Not just humility, but of peace. This first entrance into Jerusalem was indeed one of peace. But not a temporary earthly peace. This was a peace between God and man. This, you know, finally, through Jesus, the chasm that existed between God and man would be paid for and humanity would be redeemed. See, up until then, as as the people were preparing for that, you know, this before Jesus came, they had to do an animal sacrifice to atone for their sins. It was a temporary peace that, that occurred to atone for their sins. But Jesus came once and for all, pay the price that we could be redeemed. He would die on our behalf and establish eternal peace between us and God. So the, the donkey wasn't just a sign of humility, it was much, much more. So when we see the triumphal entry in the background and context, uh, the culture, when they're all examined, it reveals so much more than just the masses getting kind of caught up in the hysteria of the moment and, and um, you know, hailing Jesus as he came in. Interestingly, though, it's very likely that very many of the people who, who were saying Hosanna as Jesus came into Jerusalem were the same people who a few days later were yelling out, crucify him. Right? How quickly things turned. And, and as we come to Easter, no doubt we'll explore that more. So we come to the night before the cleansing of the temple where the tables were turned. It said Jesus was staying in Bethany. Bethany to Jerusalem was basically a neighbouring suburb, a bit like um, you know from here to Alex Hills or something, uh, only a couple of miles away, and he was staying there. And it said that he went the night before and and had a look around the temple, um, and and he went back. And if you look at uh, John's uh, version of it, it said he went back and he made a, a whip of cords uh, that night. As he uh, made his way back in the morning into Jerusalem. He cursed the fig tree because it was barren. He was hungry and the fig tree was barren. That's also significant, I suppose, as we, as we see very soon. And in Mark eleven fifteen to 19, we read, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. This um, 
story was is recorded in all the Gospels. John's Gospel places it slightly earlier in the um, history than than the others. Um, but it, obviously a significant event because it's recorded in all of the Gospels. As I said, John's Gospel says that he went and made a, a cord, a whip of cords, which he brought to him into the temple, and he used it to drive out the sheep and the oxen and the people out of the temple before he poured out the money changers' money and overturned the tables. Now some, as, as I've read up on this topic, some, I call them so-called experts, have said that Jesus used the whip on the people <laughs> and, and, he, and that they in fact call his um, behaviour like a temple tantrum, you know, a violent rage that he, that he went into as he, as he overthrew the tables and drove the people out. Um, which can't possibly have been the case that he physically abused the people, you know. And and there's a couple of really really strong reasons why. As we said, Jesus was without sin; he was the spotless, blameless lamb to go to the slaughter. If Jesus had indeed physically abused the people who were there with the whip and beat them up, then when he died on the cross sin would have had a hold on him because the wages of sin is death. And, and Jesus, being the sinless one, was able to rise three days again because he had not committed sin. It would have been a sin for him to have violently beaten up on people and whipped them and, and driven them out. So he would have used the, the cord, the, the whip, to, to drive the animals out and you know, to, to usher the people out, but not to physically beat them. Um, the Bible says, in your anger... Do not sin. See, it's not a sin to be angry. And in fact, Jesus had a very righteous anger about the house of God being treated in such a way, that the way they had um, just blatantly uh, changed the, from a place of worship into the, um, you know, the business that was going on there. Imagine the foul smell of the animals and, and um, you know, the trading that was going on, um, yeah, profiteering that was happening instead of worship. So, yeah, it wasn't a sin for him to be angry, but uh, in fact he was driven by a passion for the house. Um, you know, so the fact that he rose again is proof that he was without sin and he didn't whip and beat the people in the rage. Um, the second reason, though, why it couldn't have been a tantrum, uh, ten, temp, uh, tantrum, a temple tantrum, is found in Matthew's versions of event. Um, so it says in Matthew 21, 14, in the midst of the story of what happened in the temple... It says the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So in the midst of, of driving the people out and overturning the table, the, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them in that midst. Now, you know, that, that like last year, end of last year, I was at the shops at Alex Hills and I saw a guy having a real rage moment. I don't know whether he was on drugs or what was going on, but he was incredibly angry. He was in the shopping centre using all kinds of language um, that you shouldn't be hearing come out of someone's mouth. He was physically violent towards the, the guy who was trying to calm him down. I imagine the guy was security, I don't know. But the guy was trying to calm him down and it created a big scene and people gathered around. They, they kept their distance but they gathered around. People came out of all the shops to watch what was going on because this guy was really angry and carrying on. Now I noticed actually while I was standing there that there was a guy in a wheelchair not too far away and there was a lady an old lady with a walker not too far away watching what was happening. One thing I did notice 
was that nobody went up to him, to this guy having a rage, and said, could you pray for me that I be healed? You understand, everyone was keeping their distance. When someone's having a violent rage, people aren't seeking out healing and and wholeness from that person. In fact, if anything, you're trying to take them off to get the kind of care they need, to calm them down and try and, you know, they're the ones in need. So the fact that during this um, episode where Jesus was cleansing the temple, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them shows that it wasn't an act of violence that was going on, but, uh, but actually an act of righteous anger to, to not, not turn things over, but to turn things right, to turn things the way they should be, overturn what was wrong and to bring it, to restore it to a godly place. So indeed, Jesus was turning the tables. He was clearing the temple of the false worship, the idolatry that had come in. You know, what is false worship? Anything that we put in our life ahead of God is false worship. I said at the start that Jesus often preached to two types of people. There were those who were there with ears to hear, listening, trying to find the kingdom of God and seeking and searching. And then there were those who had their kind of religious elite who who were there judging and carrying on. And I dare say in the church today, we still have two groups of people. And... uh, and so as we hear what Jesus did, he might be speaking to us and challenging in, in either of those ways. Everything that he did that day was about establishing the new way of worship. Everything he did was establishing the kingdom of God. Um, he was saying, you know, the, the, see the authorities had allowed many false worship practices to thrive in the temple. In fact, the priests were making a lot of money through the setup they had. They were, they, were, they were on a good wicket. You know, they were making money, profiteering off the people. And, and it just broke Jesus' heart to see the Father's house be done that way. So he was literally and metaphorically turning the tables as he established his kingdom. And as I said, not turning it over to destroy, but turning it to bring in the way it should be. Literally and metaphorically turning the tables as he established his kingdom. You see, true worship is holy. It's not self-seeking. The temple was about to become irrelevant as the Holy Spirit now dwells within us as his temple. You know, Jesus knew what was coming up. Uh, he He was changing the way things was. He was turning the tables, not just literally, but metaphorically changing the way they perceived things, the way they saw things, that he was establishing a new order. The temple was irrelevant, the physical building. You know, this, this church that we come to, the physical building is irrelevant because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are the church. Wherever we go, we are the church. Whether we're here gathered together, whether we're in our workplace or in our schools or, or in our homes, in our street, in the marketplace, wherever we are, we are the church. We take the Holy Spirit with us. We take the presence of God with us and, and we minister out of that. The, the physical building, it was, it was, it was changing. The, the, the false worship that they'd done, the, the animal sacrifice was about to change. The, you know, the temporary nature of getting your life right with God was about to change because he was bringing in a new way. I might actually ask if um, we can get the worship team to come back up. Thank you. They're all out the back serving. In fact, half of them are probably out there doing the lesson because they're so young <laughs> and uh, 
Stewie's out there serving, which is awesome. Yeah, animal sacrifice was about to be done away with. Jesus was about to become that perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb that went to the slaughter, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Now, the word of God says that no greater love has any man that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus demonstrated such a great love that was incredibly powerful. He willingly went to lay down his life for us. There were, even even on the cross, I'm not going to get too much about the cross because that's coming up in the next few weeks, but even on the cross, you know, the, the guy on the cross said, hey, if you are the king, why don't you get us down from here? He had opportunity over and over again where he could have easily avoided the cross. In fact, even in his prayer, he said, Lord, if there be any other way, may it be, but your will, not mine, be done. He knew the will of the Father was that he go to the cross. He could have had the opportunity to, in his lordship to have not done that, but he went there willingly as the sacrifice for us, which is incredible. No greater love is any man that he laid down his life for his friend. A few days later, Jesus proved that. You see, when Jesus ran out the money changes, he was doing much more than making a scene. He was, he was firstly, he was rebuking the religious officials for misleading the people in their worship. They were even cheating um, God with their sacrifices. I think it's interesting that he drove out the people, that some of the people were there to have their sins atoned for. And, I, and, and again, as part of that, he was saying, the, the new way will be through him, you know, getting the father's house in order. Um, he, he stopped them being able to do the wrongful sacrifice at the time. He chastised them for not existing for the purpose which they had origi- originally been established, just like the fig tree that he saw on the way in. You know, it wasn't living up to its purpose. The fig tree that was barren, that wasn't bringing fruit, wasn't living according to its design and he cursed it and it withered. For, for me, that shows how important it is that we are living for the purpose that God has for us, that we are following him and living for the purpose that he has for us. How much that was Jesus' heart that we live to the full in him. He was, he was saying that he wasn't here for the greedy, he was here for the needy. You know, the kingdom of God wasn't good news for the religious elite, but it was good news for the poor. It was good news for the ordinary. It was good news for the average person. Pastor Sean likes to call himself the normal one, which means the rest of us aren't normal. Who wants to be normal anyway, right? But the good news of Jesus is that he came for the normal. He came for the ordinary person. He came for those who were seeking and have ears to hear what he's saying. And, and it is great news what he did for us. But for the religious elite who were judging, it, it wasn't good news. They lost their power. They lost their way. The temple, the very symbol of God's presence, was eventually going to come down. But the fullness of God's presence was Jesus and would be everlasting. So you think in that moment, who was in fellowship with God and who was on the outside looking in? You know, the religious leaders thought the temple was theirs and yet... Jesus totally upturned it. The answers to those questions were being flipped right before everyone's eyes. Stuart, do you want to just uh, find a bit?
Awesome. Thank you. See, in recent years, I believe even, you know, the church, even in fact, even in recent weeks, the church has been the subject of much scandal. There's been a lot happening. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Ravi Zachariah's name recently was added to the list of those who, who'd had scandalous behaviour. Um, in Australia, we've had the Royal Commission looking into the churches and, um, and you know, some horrendous crimes that have occurred in, in the name of the church. And so there's been a lot of um, challenging uh, moments for the church as a whole. There's been a lot of exploitation and a lot, and some of it's still being exposed now. There's people who have been damaged by what has happened inside church, which is terrible. Some of the metaphorical tables have been flipped over and those who were once the religious elite again hearing Jesus' rebuke. So I'd like to close today by looking at the implications of Jesus turning the tables. See, Jesus did away with false worship, as I said before, anything that we put ahead of God in our life. And as we examine our life, I know when I examine mine, I'm not preaching as if I'm one who's perfect, far be it. God's speaking to me that as I examine my life, I see things in my life that I've held on to and I've put in front of him and I need to get rid of them. And in fact, I need to completely flip it and turn it around. Is there any area in your life as you examine your life that you know Jesus wants you to flip? See, Jesus flipped the tables 180 degrees. And so too, repentance is turning 180 degrees. If we're heading in the wrong direction, it's turning 180 degrees, completely flipping and heading towards Jesus. You know, wide is the way to destruction, but the way to righteousness is the the narrow path. and, And he wants us to walk on that. Flip it 180 degrees and walk on the narrow path. Turn from sin and into his redemptive arms. So if you believe God is speaking to you today, whether you, whether you are someone who have never accepted Jesus, whether you've never made that decision to follow Christ, or whether you're someone who's been around for a long time, and you might actually see that you might notice there's been areas of judgment in your life, areas where you actually relate more to um, the religious elite who've been, uh, who were, um, you know, acting against uh, the purposes of God and the kingdom of God. Regardless of what situation you find yourself in, if God's speaking to you, I believe that we need a response. So um, we're going to play a song in worship in a moment. And I'm going to ask if, if you believe God is speaking to you, if there's an area in your life that you know God wants to flip, that I invite you while, while the worship band play, to come forward. Um, we've got the eldership here who'd love to pray for you. And, uh, and because I believe God wants to do business, he wants his people to walk in true worship, to be true worshippers, to, you know, even sometimes Christians end up being held back because we hold on to things that we haven't let go of. And Jesus wants to flip it in our life and turn 180 degrees. What is it that Jesus is speaking to you about today in your heart that he needs you to flip? Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.